The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So welcome everyone. Nice to see everybody here tonight. The last few weeks we were looking at Chapter 17 in Jack Hornfield's book, The Wise Heart on Intention, and we're moving on tonight to the next chapter. which is titled Sacred Vision, Imagination, Ritual, and Practice. Probably there's a certain number of us in the room that thought that we got interested in Buddhist practice because we weren't interested in imagination, ritual, visualization. But like it or not, it's really how the mind works. The mind works with imagination. All of our life is a ritual, whether we're aware of it or not. We have rituals of getting out of bed in the morning. We have rituals of getting ourselves into bed. We have rituals around food. We have rituals around our body, around sex, around using the toilet, around birth, around death. And around each of, you know, each event, ordinary events, profound events of our life, we bring, we add so much, you know, how our mind imagines that experience, what our mind brings to that experience, has a lot to do with how we experience it. It isn't just that we're there for our dad's death. What we're really there for is what we imagine what we bring to that experience. So, if you haven't discovered directly in your life, this is a good time to realize the power of visualization, the power of imagination, the power of ritual to shape our lives, and to consciously participate, to own, in a sense, we own that power. Because if we don't own the power of imagination and ritual and symbol, then it's just happening anyway, but it's happening below the level of consciousness. We're still controlled in a sense, our lives controlled very much by symbols, imagination, but we're oblivious. So we're destined then to just be controlled in a way that doesn't allow for growth or transformation. For example, you know, in 2001, um, was it 2001 when the World Trade Centers were hit? So that, for a lot of people, became a powerful symbol, but a very different symbol for different people. You know, maybe initially it was a symbol of when there's immense suffering, how people can come together. And later, maybe for a number of us, many people, it became a symbol for why we can't trust other people. You know, and even wondering who we can trust. Or a symbol of, you know, justifying 
violent action, retribution, revenge. I mean, it's all kinds of things are symbolized as people remember that event. So not just one thing. Maybe it reminds us of vulnerability, how something seemingly strong and invincible isn't so strong and invincible. Now, the question is, who gets to define the symbols that control our lives? Are we just going to be handed them, you know, the metaphors, the symbols, the, you know, what we imagine, what we visualize, and then affected by those visualizations or imaginations? Or can we actively own it, participate in it? We don't like going in this direction. What we like is things that have a sense of solid ground. This is how it is. This is what's happened to me. This is what, how the world works, who I am, who you are. And the more we you know, hear or talk like this or reflect in this way, we begin to see how fluid things are. And more importantly, how constructed everything is. This reality that we experience has been constructed, has been put together in our mind through various influences. How we understand this moment, who I am, who you are, what we're doing here together, is a constructed experience. Where else did it come from? And this construction has happened in each of our minds. Now, to some degree, there's there's some shared things about this these constructions. You know. What I'm constructing right now in my mind might be in some ways similar to what you're constructing right now in your mind. But we're constructing this experience, all of us, and the construction, the process of constructing meaning, like what this, how I understand this, the meaning of this experience being at Common Ground on Sunday night together, you know, that construction is the result of a lot of previous work, a lot of imagining over the months and years makes it easy for me to construct a particular meaning now with the different elements I have to work with. You know, if I've been imagining common ground or you guys or this in different ways over the months and years, then it's just easy for me to reconstruct that right now. In uh, each of these chapters, if you're not reading the book, Jack Hornfield isolates or uh, articulates, maybe, a particular principle of Buddhist psychology. So it's really this book, The Wise Heart, is his attempt to articulate the important principles that come out of the Buddhist teachings, how to work, how to understand the mind, work with and understand the mind. So in this particular chapter, chapter 18, the Buddhist principle that Jack Kornfield articulates goes like this. What we, re- what we repeatedly visualize changes our body and consciousness. Visu- visualize freedom and compassion. What we frequently or what we repeatedly visualize changes our body and consciousness. Visualize freedom and compassion. So if what we tend to do is dismiss ritual, imagination, 
visualization, these various structures of life, of human life, it doesn't mean we're not immersed in visualization, imagination, and ritual. It's just that our ritual, our imaginations are around how unimportant all that is. But that itself is a projection that we're living in, right? We are living the effect of that ritual. Like I could have the ritual of dismissing rituals. So whenever I see a church, come into common ground and see an altar, see people put their hands together after they meditate, you know, I could have a particular habit, ritual, of imagining visualizing how empty and unimportant and silly that gesture is. And being engaged wholeheartedly in that ritual of believing that and you know will have an effect on my mind. And you could somebody else could have a different thing. They think, oh, when I bring my palms together, you know, all the energy of the universe comes here right now. And that could have a different effect on the mind. So, can we, are we willing to consider owning this responsibility that what we imagine, what we visualize, has an effect on the mind? If we spend most of the day imagining that nothing matters, it starts to appear that nothing matters. You know, if we spend most of the day visualizing, imagining that only what I do matters, then all of a sudden, what you do really matters, you know? And maybe you are become overly concerned, like, am I doing, am I you know, taking advantage of this precious life to do what really matters? Because it matters. Maybe the way to begin this work, and we'll stick with this chapter for a couple weeks, um, maybe the way to begin this work is to think about just different ways, obvious ways, that we're constructing meaning. I mentioned a little bit at the beginning of the set and at the end of the set, just a sense of being grounded, being stable, being present. That's a nice image, a nice visualization, because it doesn't matter if you've been practicing for years or not. It's pretty obvious, this swirl of life. Unless you're, you know, really fortunate and live in an ideal utopian place where things are very settled, sunny every day, people treat you in a really simple, beautiful way every day, <clears throat> pick your mangoes, you have no job, don't need a job, the fruit just falls from the trees. But for most of us, life is a real swirl. Things are coming and going, responsibilities and duties. And we're in this swirling world, and a lot of the time, most of the time, everything seems important. You know, the swirl seems important. We want it to swirl a particular way, or we want to respond to the swirl in a particular way. So life can be heavy and, and troubling. 
just to manage the swirl of this and that, good and bad, life and death. <clears throat> and so it's really helpful to use our imagination <clears throat> and ritual and symbol <clears throat> to have a sense of stability, to support the mind opening to sense of stability. Because you know what it's like. Once we lose our footing in an intimate relationship, our footing at our job, our footing you know, as citizens of this country, once we lose our footing, it's a little bit like sliding down that proverbial well, except we don't want to slide down. So we're struggling to get a hold, struggling to you know, get back on our feet. Oh yeah, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to get back in control. This is how I'm going to make things go the way I want them. So, in practice, you know, one of the things that daily sitting practice can do for us, it can be a powerful ritual that a metaphor for stability for being solid. You know, the world is swirling. Things are coming and going. The to-do list continues to grow. Worries, fears, all the unknown. The more we know, the more we know we don't know. So all this is happening. And what do we do? We put aside 30 minutes or an hour or whatever you have, and we sit down. And we relax the body. And we let everything move. But we don't move. We sit still, we let sensations move, we let sights move, we let sounds move, we let thought move, we let emotion move, but we don't move. And in that ritual of sitting, that great metaphor of sitting, meditation practice, we realize, we kind of understand what it means to be stable. Some of you know on Sunday morning, we sing some songs with the children when they come in at the end of the practice group on Sunday mornings at 11.45. We sing one of the songs from Plum Village, one of Thich Nhat Hanh's mem uh, monasteries. And some of the lines, um, I, am blooming le I, I am blooming as a flower, I am fresh as the dew, I am solid as a mountain, I am firm as the earth, I am free. And that's a really nice contrast because, you know, flowers are beautiful, but they're pretty fragile. We, we do this sort of image or this uh, gesture when we're singing the song with the children. So I'm blooming as a flower. I'm fresh as the dew. These are very fragile items, right? Flowers and a little drop of dew maybe on the leaf of the plant. And then, the, and then the, it goes, I'm solid as a mountain. I'm firm as the earth. And it's really nice to, to use these powerful images. And to, it's like a doorway into what might be possible for us, that maybe we can be as beautiful and fragile as a droplet of dew or a, a beautiful flower, and also as solid as a mountain, as firm as the earth. reflect on these different places in our life where we already 
have a lot of image, images, imaginings, where we're habitually visualizing or thinking in predictable ways, where we're already uh, caught, maybe, in particular rituals or patterns of behavior. And I've mentioned some already, but I'll just go through. And as I mention these different places, just see if you can, uh, from an objective point of view, get a sense of how the mind organizes its experience, mostly to protect ourselves. Not that it actually works, but we tend to use form, ritual, a lot as a way of protecting. And then if somebody moves in, you know, and interrupts our particular rituals, for example, like in the bathroom, our different ways of taking care of our body in the bathroom, whether it's brushing the teeth or using the toilet or cleaning the body, cleaning the ears. You know, we have particular ways, how we, the stuff we need, the sort of accoutrements of our rituals, our toiletry rituals, and, you know, how we do it and when we do it and with music or without music and um, reading materials or not and, you know, whether we, we respect it and then, then it's going to look a particular way or we're someone who dismisses the importance and then our bathrooms and our activities are going to look a different kind of way. And just to get a sense of what that says about the mind and uh, how that might change if we decided to start consciously participating in something as ordinary as our rituals around taking care of the body in the bathroom. If we brought a real sense of wisdom and mindfulness, real presence, discriminating presence, and saw what happens with how we use our mind around these, this you know, necessary activity of taking care of the body. We could have a sense of all of the imaginings around death, like all the different ways we imagine death. And it's so interesting in our culture, maybe a lot of cultures, this is true, but you know, how many stories we have around death. You know, in a given movie, a given TV show, like all the different ways as a culture we imagine death, we think about death, we picture death, the different rituals we have around death. And how conscious or unconscious these are, like how many of them maybe we've just accepted just because we're part of the culture. Around birth. You know, if birth is good, right? <laughs> and death is bad. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, we learn. If we don't learn this one, you know, we're definitely outcasts. You know, when there's birth, we should be happy. When there's death, we should be sad. This is part of the cultural ritual around these things. Maybe you remember seeing the movie Zorba the Greek or reading the book. I think it's in both the book and the movie, but definitely I remember the scene in the movie where somebody dies and uh, and they're sort of like the, the paid, I don't know if they're actually paid, but uh, mourners, you know, screaming, 
remember that scene? It's like that's what we do around death in one way or another. You know, all the ritual and forms, all the ways we use the imagination around differences, people who look different than we do, different colors, different class, different, uh, come from a different place, different habits, you know, ways of dressing. Even here at Common Ground, I was saying this morning, you know, if we looked around, we could probably see that whether we're conscious of it or not, that we've all, we're all part of a ritual like how we present ourselves here. There's some probably underlying themes about how we present ourselves. I haven't seen too many people in coat and ties, for example. I mean, it's just one example. And how, uh, you know, like, what what are we sort of projecting and imposing on each other? And how can, you know, what what is the mind doing? What are we creating here together? Even something as simple as our body image. You know, all the rituals, all the ways we imagine the body have huge effects on our lives. It's one thing to to be in a body, you know, to have sensation. But much bigger than that, the actual experience of sensation is the imaginings, the almost continuous, continuous imaginings we have about the body. We're visualizing the body all the time and reacting to it. And of course, the particular shape and forms we see around us we also have responses or reactions to that as well. So the body shape and image and what the mind does with all that has a huge effect on the reality we live in. The kinds of judgments. You know, so much of being old, I think, as I just see it myself, is the ideas we have about being old. You know, how you can be feeling fine, and then you see your face. And like I noticed this morning, I was going to lunch with some friends. I was sitting in the back seat. I think that's where I was. I, I, somewhere where I got a nice glimpse of my face. It just astounded me how far the hairline had receded. I think I was wearing my stocking cap a lot, so my hair is pressed back. So, you know, you don't have the bangs sort of. It's like, oh, it's really gone back. <laughs> and then and then all of a sudden the experience of the body shifts. You know, it doesn't matter if I'm feeling like I have a lot of energy, because now I saw something like I must be getting old because it seems like it's going back. And then it's like the the seeming reality of the body follows from the idea, from the, the visual image now, and the idea that goes with that. <coughs> Jack Kornfeld says in the book, neither lost in denial or enthralled by their energy, we can learn to see them clearly and walk freely in their mists. Just like those old European cathedrals or 
I think even in the States you see sometimes these gargoyles and the different demons that sit in the front. I think even like those old libraries sometimes have big lions sitting in the, in the front. You know, we have the same sort of, with our imaginations or the way we visualize the world, the mind projects those same demons, fierce, beautiful sometimes, uh, feelings and images around what we're afraid of and what we're attracted to. It's like when we, I was saying around uh, bodies, you know, when we, for whatever reason, think somebody's attractive, then we visualize certain aspects of that person's face or body or personality. It's like, and we make them into jewels, you know, and we forget everything else that they might have body odor or that they might be this or that. And we just see these two things. Or if we see somebody that's unattractive for whatever reason, then the mind fixes on the things that are unattractive. And it creates a certain reality that we live in. If you think common ground's a great place, as you're walking in, it's like your cumulative experience of visualizing or imagining Kamagam, it takes over your experience. And you just see it in a, in a nice glow. You know? Everyone looks so happy. Everybody looks so wholesome. And we don't see that there are dust bunnies on the floor and some people have holes in their socks and, you know, whatever we might otherwise notice. They misspelled a word on one of the posters or... The coats are lying in a bundle on the floor <laughs> this morning after the program. I think there are like 30 coats all just piled together on the floor. But we can be completely oblivious to those things. So in the next few weeks, what we'll want to do is um, feel empowered to experiment, <coughs> to practice. <coughs> <clears throat> practice uh, visualizing. You know, there's some of you know, probably some of you even read the book. Get the name of the book, The Law of Attraction. Is that what it's called? Anybody know? It came out a number of years ago and made a bit of a splash. And, you know, there's, this has been around, this idea has been around probably for as long as human beings have been around that it matters what you think. And if you want something good to happen, you have to think about that. Well, it's, it's not so simple. Because if I'm desperately thinking about being wealthy, what actually, what actually are we constructing in the mind? We're constructing the feeling of desperately needing wealth, which means we're feeling quite insufficient, or we wouldn't have to desperately be imagining more money. So how we work with visualization, work with our imagination, it has to come from a, a deep place, a deep understanding. How does this work? How can we use imagination? How can we use form, the actual structures of our life, to orient the mind in the direction of compassion and freedom instead of tightness 
and fear and greed. You know, I mean, in a, in a silly sense, if I surround my bedroom with intoxicating catalogs of electronic goods and, uh, you know, provocative news items about uh, celebrities who have, what do they call them now, um, clothes malfunctions or... There's a word, you know, wardrobe malfunctions, you know, the things you sometimes see in, in respectable news, internet news sites, right? Because it, I was talking to Doug McGill, some of you know, he sometimes gives talks here at the center. He's the person who started the Rochester, Minnesota um, Meditation Center, quite active group now down there. And uh, he's a longtime journalist, wrote for a long time for the New York Times and Bloomberg News and other places, and uh, he's he's uh, recently kind of coming, getting back into the whole world of journalism after having taught it at St. Thomas and Carleton and other places, so doing it more. And so he wants to do it, of course, on the internet because that's where it's happening now. It's very few people actually buy paper news, and um, so he was telling me a little. I had lunch with him the other day. He was telling me, well, it's all about how many eyeballs see the page. And so he's mentioning the Huffington Post, you know, which has a few um, in there. If you look at their site, the middle column has sort of respectable journalism going on. And then on the left side, they have all these um, articles, columns written by people who don't get paid. You know, so it's just all these options if you care to read them. And then on the right side, it's like all the things, all the T's, all the wardrobe malfunctions and the, you know, videos of cats and <laughs> anything that's... And these are all, of course, because of the way our mind is conditioned. So it's, it's like we have these, uh, these holes we fall in, like cats are interesting, they're cute. You know, they, they've done, scientists have done studies about, like, what is it that makes a baby's face cute? And a lot of animals, especially animals that humans like having in their homes, they have cute faces, cute as defined by how our mind works, how the brain, you know, s sort of feels safe, what makes the brain feel safe, what triggers certain responses in the brain. You know, so we keep cats. I was... Of watching one of those videos, I confess, and it was, uh, it was, uh, I think it was just a dog, a little puppy playing with a bear cup, you know, and they were just kind of wrestling around, being incredibly cute, and it was fun. It was fun to sort of watch the little bear cup. I mean, there aren't too many things that at least I instinctively like to see as a little bear cup. You know, they're so fluffy. And, you know, you've got all this sort of energy, playful energy, and the big eyes, you know, and you just, you just want to care for it and love it. And so we could build, you know, I could, a couple of us together, we could build a whole religion around this. We get one of those mega churches, and it would all be about watching videos of kitties and small baby animals. It'd be a lot more successful than Comic-Con, which is doing pretty well. <laughs> but it's true. These, you know, if, you, if once we understand 
what we're attracted to, what the mind likes to dwell on, and the responses we get. But we can also use that power, and it really is the power of understanding the mind, to direct the mind in safe directions. Like I was saying before, around stability and uh, being grounded. Because in this swirling world, we all want to be grounded. And it's a question, well, upon what elements are we going to build that sense of safety? Because normally the way we're conditioned to build a sense of safety is around the power of stuff. Big cars, big house, big paycheck, you know, trophy husband, trophy wife, trophy partner. These things make us feel safe. Now, but we can construct another image, like uh, a being like a flower, and fresh as dew, and solid as a mountain, and firm as the earth. We can have a sense of that our real power, our real safety, our refuge, is in our capacity to be awake, to be open, to be sensitive, like not being afraid of being sensitive and awake and present. There's a, we can have that as an image. You know, for some people, not everybody, if you work with it, the image of the Buddha can have that, make that, or you can create your own image that represents a power or stability that isn't about things like money and health and uh, power of different kinds that are ephemeral, that come and go, but about something that is unconditioned. You don't have, you don't need particular conditions in order to feel safe, to feel solid, because it's the solidity of not needing to hold, right? Now, it's hard to shape that kind of solidity. If our power comes from being able to let go, or our power comes from being able to let things be, what is going to knock us down? So this is how we can begin to experiment in our lives. Once we have a sense of the direction that is useful to uh, orient the heart around, then we can use the power of ritual, the power of visualization and imagining to direct the mind in that way. Because the mind's being directed anyway. We might as well direct it in the direction of what we find actually useful and, and dependable, as opposed to what's not useful or dependable. So in the next few weeks, you can just let come up in your mind all the different ways this is happening. I, I sort of did a little of this just even from my childhood. You know, some of the symbols, images, visualizations I just naturally worked with. I remember one particular, particularly powerful image, and I don't remember when it happened whether it was just in my dreams, my sleeping dreams, or in waking life. I think I did work with it in waking life, but whether it actually was based on a real experience and what that would mean, I'm not sure. But at least in my dreams and then in my imaginations, 
I had this idea, this image of a white bird. And this is when I was pretty young, five or six or so. And it was, for me, I had a, you know, as a child, a magical purity to it. I didn't understand it, but I was, I remember feeling really inspired by this white bird. You know, maybe it's because I saw the Olympics and, you know, how they released the white doves and things like that. Who knows where it came from? Maybe I actually saw a white dove at some point, you know, but I have, or still in my mind, you know, in front of my house in North Minneapolis, sitting on the, near the sidewalk by the street, this beautiful white bird that, you know, had a sense of light emanating from it. Now, probably what, what the heart imagined or saw was something, that sense of purity and goodness was something real. But what helped me realize it as a little kid was that image of the bird. You know, it wasn't the bird that was good or pure. The goodness or the purity was something the mind or heart understood directly. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been so impactful for me. Later, much later, when I was in my uh, I guess early 20s, mid-20s. I was on a silent meditation retreat out in Santa Barbara. And I remember uh, after a particularly inspiring talk and feeling so moved by this practice and by what people, how people had transformed their lives, in particular a teacher that I never met. He died in 1964, but his writings were very inspiring for me. And... Uh, I was just lying down on the grass, looking up at the stars, and just appreciating this person and the influence he was having in my life, just through his books and through a number of teachers I had connected with who were students of this person. And, uh, and then all of a sudden it just became clear that I can't imagine somebody being really good if I didn't somehow understand directly what that is to be really good or to be really wise or to be really compassionate. How could I imagine something without knowing it directly? Do you know what I mean? I don't know if that's clear, but it really turned my practice around because I'd always tended to be idealistic, sort of projecting goodness out there somewhere. And then to realize that you can't do that without knowing it which meant somewhere, somehow, it was available here. It really helped me understand the whole spiritual practice or path better, that particular insight. Another image I had as a kid you might find entertaining. Again, I was pretty young, somewhere between five and seven, I'm guessing. But I used to have this somewhat disconcerting sense that if I turned around quickly enough, I'd catch, I don't know if it was people or putting it all together, like some sense that this world was just a construction and somebody was putting it together. I probably, being raised a Catholic, thought it was you know, God's associates out there making it all happen. And if I just caught them off guard, I'd catch them. I was so, uh, I so enjoyed the Truman Show, is that what it was called, that Jim Carrey movie. 
because it was like that's exactly the thought I had as a kid that somehow this world was just a thin veneer of what appeared and I didn't quite get it you know that I that it uh, I don't know I was just very curious about how do they get it all together how do they make this all happen <laughs> and a related story to this and then I'll open it up for discussion I was uh, for a while I was a school teacher and I did my training out in at Berkeley UC Berkeley in, in California and, and I was doing some student teaching with a inner city school and we took the kids at the end of the year to uh, Big Basin State Park I think it's called it's on the way to Santa Cruz just south of San Francisco beautiful redwood forest in the state park if any of you have been out there you know and they have some cabins and so a fourth grade class and the principal and the teachers and I were all there and we climbed one of the hills a pretty big hill overlooking the redwoods ocean off in the distance and the little girl probably hadn't been much out of the inner city in her life fourth grade girl you know turns to me and says how did they make this <laughs> you know this idea that it's again you know it's just so the different ways we imagine the world it has a huge effect on the life we live so we can begin to check out how we're imagining this world instead of taking it as a given see that we're actively participating in the world we're living in by how we imagine it what we're visualizing the different form or ritual that we've either fallen into accidentally or chosen or imagined that we've chosen but anyway, I'll say the last 12 minutes, if people have questions or comments from your life experience you'd like to share with the group, what comes to mind? Particular rituals? Images that have been helpful or harmful. Yeah. Um, Say your name, please, Freddie. Um, it seems like the practice of visualization kind of goes against, in a way, the practice of just accepting things as they are, like letting them go. So I guess I, if I think about Yeah, it's a good question, and, and I think it's it's correct to some degree to see this as being opposite of the general practice, which is the practice of letting be or letting go, a deconstructive practice of not constructing, but letting things naturally fall apart. Fall apart because the mind isn't 
actively constructing it, reconstructing it, so things just naturally fall apart. But the thing is, as things fall apart, the conditioned mind is disturbed by that. And so it's going to cling more intensely to its imaginings because it's frightened by the dissolution of meaning, basically. The meaning of self, the meaning of life, the meaning of the world. Because we live in a constructed world, and now not only are we living in a constructed world, but the mind has become addicted or identified or attached to the constructions. So as we begin to take up the practice of mindfulness, we see how quickly things are falling apart, how ephemeral thoughts are. And uh, it's very healing on the one hand, and it's disturbing. So where are we going to get a sense of stability? So we have to use, uh, use the process of imagination, visualization, ritual, to help orient the mind toward stability. Because it's the stability, it's the sense of safety that allows us to do the work of letting go. Nobody, when they're uh, falling apart, will let go. The more we feel threatened, we instinctively will hold tight. What allows the heart to really let go is a sense of safety or wholeness or inner happiness. <clears throat> so from a spiritual point of view, we use the power of ritual and visualization and imagination to... <clears throat> orient the mind toward a wholesome stability, safety, the safety of inner happiness or love or these different states of mind or states of heart that are trustworthy and wholesome because they allow the mind, they support the mind in seeing things as they are and letting go, letting things be. So that's, that's why we want to get skilled in this because we'll need it. We need the safety that we need to orient the mind in a direction where there's real safety. And <clears throat> this is really the science of working with the conditioned mind. The conditioned mind, the ordinary mind, the conventional mind, it knows how to respond to imagination and to visualization and to ritual. That's, that's it, the language it knows. So we need to use it to take care of the ordinary mind, the conventional mind, so it feels safe. So, you know, like in a more more elaborate than the Theravada Buddhist tradition that we come out of, and it's just popular in the state. So I'll just mention Tibetan Buddhism, which has this whole, you know, pantheon of, of bodhisattvas and de different deities representing different aspects of the mind. You know, and people learn to visualize and to bring to mind these different archetypal forces, protections, you know, like the beasts sitting on the corners of the cathedrals, and, and feel protected by these forces. We have to do the same things. In this tradition, <clears throat> those, those elaborate deities, there are things like compassion and equanimity and joy kindness and patience and gratitude, these wholesome emotions. <clears throat> the Theravada tradition, which comes more out of the uh, teachings of the Buddha, the historic Buddha, 
it's very psychologically based. So we're building, you know, rituals and imagination and visualization around these psychological states. You know, if we could, if we knew how to do it skillfully, we'd have, you know, 15 altars in this room. You know, we have an altar for patience over there, an altar for gratitude. And the images and the shape of the altar, we'd see it and it would strum some deep string in our heart that would remind us of our own experience of patience and our own experience of gratitude and our own experience of kindness and compassion. And we'd feel really safe around those kinds of emotions and mind states. We'd feel safe enough to open up completely and let, and let go. Because those wholesome qualities of mind are powerfully, you know, they, they really protect us. They, we feel safe. We feel like we're willing to investigate things truthfully. Thanks, Rob, for the good comment and question. Yeah, Lewis. What do you mean by safe? Trust. We trust. <coughs> trust things as they are. It's like, it's interesting. It's a paradoxical experience when the mind is seeing how ephemeral everything is and at the same time really trusting it. Not, uh, I mean, we can interpret the ephemeral nature of experience. Like everything, thought comes and goes, sensation comes and goes, sound. Life is very ephemeral, both in a big sense. You know, we're born, we live for a while, and we die. And it seems like that happens a lot faster than I used to think it happens, you know, that whole process of living and dying. So everything is ephemeral. So what is safety? Well, safety has to be in the context of that. So safe means not having a problem with impermanence. I remember Shokte Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, teaches in the States. He's actually coming to Minnesota to lead a retreat for the Terragar organization in uh, early June up at St. John's, I think. But I was at a retreat with him a long time ago, and somebody said something once to him, and he just responded in such a clear, powerful way. I don't have a problem with impermanence. You know, just... That's real safety. Not having a problem with uncertainty, like what's going to happen next, that gives us a lot of power, the power of feeling safe. So I can live my life doing what needs to be done, not afraid of what's going to happen, because I've totally integrated the reality of uncertainty and insecurity. So I'm not expecting anything to happen because I know things are uncertain. Are there any other thoughts? We have a few more minutes. Just yeah, say your name. Jim, I've used visualization quite a lot, especially when I'm having advances. Uh, one of them is that I visualize the smile of Buddha, or what is possibly a smile or not a smile. <laughs> I find that after a while it brings on a sense of joy, yeah. which brings a smile to my own face. Some people, well, actually myself, I feel, have kind of a resistance to that because you're supposed to feel the joy first and then the smile comes, but I'm confident it doesn't really matter which comes first, whether the smile is the joy or the joy. 
And that's, that's a powerful principle in this whole work that we're talking about, is that uh, the visualization or the imagination has its own power. And it doesn't matter what comes first. We just want to be pragmatic. So we can use the image to have an effect. Or the effect can reinforce the image. So when you are happy, then you can connect that with the experience of that smile. And then when you aren't happy, you can bring the smile to mind and have the effect of feeling happy. Maybe a little louder, Jim. They used to tell uh, depressed people to smile. Yeah. Well, this is part of the Buddhist uh, Buddhist tradition to bring a smile to mind in meditation practice. Yeah, so experiment with that. In the privacy of your own home, when you're alone, where you won't feel silly, just notice. And this is the important thing about this work we'll be doing if, if you're going to follow along in the next few weeks. You have to be willing to experiment and judge things pragmatically according to the results you get in your mind, not about what you think. You've got to just leave that behind and just see what the actual effects are. And then be pragmatic. If you get a positive effect, then work with it. Develop it. Yeah, it has to be quick, though. Um, well, two things, and I'll make it quick. Uh, visualization, I was reading Sadhguru, mm-hmm. and he talks about Padmasam Hava, this ancient 7th century, um, what was he, the uh, reincarnation of Buddha? Or, uh, well, the, you know, according to traditions, different things, but yeah, he's just a, a well-known Buddhist saint. A Buddhist saint, and, and apparently he was the, he was a Buddha of compassion. He's the one that people would reflect on. I had no connection whatsoever, so I couldn't visualize. But at night, I was having dream issues, and I started to read some poetry by Gibran. Mm-hmm. And this is recent. It just transformed, completely changed my reading pattern. And then I brought that into the daily life, just as a more positive piece. So the mental processing I did before actually was going to my subconscious, too. So it really did have a big impact. Yeah. And this can be done in more elaborate ways or really simple ways. Like for me, almost several times, probably most days, I'll just bring the word love to mind. I'll just be sitting and I'll just bring that word love. And then whatever I'm sensing, seeing, hearing, aware of in that moment, I just practice. And But it, it's, it's really tapping into that potential. And for me, it's just the word love, just the word love itself. So it can be very simple. Other people, their minds are different. It's like... Just like we have different personalities, our minds are what people will need more elaborate stuff. They have a really rich, deep image that will go, you know, they don't want the word love. I have kind of a clinical mind. You know, other people have a more rich and uh, colorful mind. It doesn't matter. You just have to do what works, uh, what supports the effect. And experimenting will help you understand your mind and how to work with it. And we'll pick this up next week, and probably for the next couple weeks. So please uh, pay attention and be willing. I'll set aside more time next Sunday so that people can share what you've been discovering in your own practice. And we'll just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Maybe take a few breaths. And tuning in to the form 
to the ritual of sitting in silence together with a group of people. Feeling the collective space of being here together. All of our wholesome intentions here together now. Just appreciating the safety, the goodness, and inspired to cultivate a life of wisdom and compassion as a way of taking care of ourselves and as a way of taking care of the world, all beings. So may this be so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.